Hello and welcome to another episode of the Parlay in All Blue. We are joined today by Dr. Rhea Williams Bishop. She is the, the director of programs for Mississippi and New Orleans for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We're going to talk and dig into what's the state of children, especially in light of the, the pandemic. Rhea is a child and family advocate. And so we're going to get her insights on how we can support and help our children and families. You also hear during this episode the importance of role models and mentoring and all of those things. So thank you again. Up next, Dr. Rhea Williams Bishop on the Parlay in All Blue. Stay tuned. Dr. Rhea Williams Bishop, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am doing well, Mark. Excited to be here on your on your show. Well, you know what? One of the things that I'm going to ask in a very facetious way, have I met you someplace before? Wow, I would hope so. I would hope we so, were, right? We were, we were at JSU at the same time. So That's right. uh, we, we crossed paths on occasion. On occasion, that's right. That's right. Good. That's right. All good. All good. You know, and and so I am saying that that for the audience. So if you hear things take on a very conversational nature, it's because we go way back. Now, I will also say for some people listening in the audience, I will continue to f- refer to Doctor Williams Bishop as Doctor Williams Bishop because I was driven nearly insane when President Biden was elected and people were questioning whether they should call the first lady Dr. Biden or not. And I I just think that, you know, first off, it's a thing for the person who's gone through the rigor and achieved or what have you. But it's also really important for those of us who are tackling any problem or want to understand anything that there are people who've dedicated themselves and study. And so, the doctor is not just sort of uh, it, it is acknowledgement, it is honoring and all like that. But it is a it is a sort of calling in to there are people that we can turn to. So uh, there we go. Even though we know each other, I'm going to keep that part of it formal. I, I so appreciate it. So what we want to um, wanted to have you on to talk about is the state of children in the country, especially with you being a child and family advocate with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and your director of programs for Mississippi and New Orleans. So you have all of the the things to, to do that in. And I, and I think it's really important because there's so much information coming at us that children and families can be missed. And so we want to get some some insight into where things are there. So we'll do that. And we're now in month 20 of the pandemic, which is um, unbelievable. I wouldn't have expected it. I remember when we started that there was going to be a couple of weeks and, you know, we'd be back at it. But but here we are. But before we get to any of that, just to put in context, what was your journey to this work? How did you how did how did you get here and just sort of walk us through through your journey? Mm, and Mark, I try to give you the, the short version. It's a it's a long and winding road. No, no straight paths or straight roads. Um, and much like the roads that I grew up on in rural Mississippi. Okay. Center of Leak County. We would say Carthage simply because it was the nearest town. So really I grew up eight miles outside of, of Carthage, really on the banks of the Pearl River. Born in Greenville, Mississippi, actually. Everything in the community, family, faith, community, education, service, history. Those are the themes or words that come to mind every time I have a conversation with anybody about where I come from and you know why I've stayed in Mississippi, why I chose the work that I'm currently engaged in. It came naturally. 
Now, there was no major for this, so to speak, uh, to get into what I consider child and family advocacy or to get into grant making. I never even dreamed that there was a job in the foundation world or philanthropy that would allow me to do what I'm currently doing. So imagine being a, a high school student trying to figure it out. You know, you do all these great things. You, you take the ACT and do well. You make good grades, not really knowing what I wanted to major in. Right. Got a full scholarship to Jackson State and didn't know what my major would be until maybe my second semester of my sophomore year. Literally, I had no clue. Started out as an art major, went to political science. Then discovered urban studies, which, in my opinion, was a combination of so many different things that I love. It was a little social work, a little political science, a little black history. And that's where I found my my place. Did a lot of internships with at all levels of state government. Fast forward, graduated, decided to, to stay in school because I couldn't find a job locally, worked on my master's in public policy and administration as a Patricia Roberts Harris fellow, okay, which was exciting. Then on from there to the Internal Revenue Service for about five years, decided to leave when they moved my job to Memphis and said, okay, this is not something, I'm not leaving Mississippi. I've got too much work to do here and got into nonprofit work. And then that ultimately led me to to philanthropy. So because we go way back, one of the and, and so I, I did some research, by the way, Uh-oh. and, and Uh-oh. I was told to ask, what was your father's reaction to your first major in, in art? And so, you know, I got that from an insider, that question from an insider. Yeah, you had to. Uh, so that that art major thing, he was like, "Okay, so are you going? You going to either teach, or you going to be a starving or dead artist to make any money?" And quickly, I changed my mind. The, the other part of that conversation, Mark, since we're going to insider stories, I was headed to Howard. Oh, so really? I thought, okay. So I thought that was my ultimate go to Howard. Right. He said, "Okay, it's cold." Then he looked at the the amount that it would cost. I only got offered a partial scholarship. Then in the mail came a full scholarship from Jackson State, a full scholarship from Alcorn. And he took both envelopes and had me sitting across the table and slid them to me. He said, these are your decisions. Full scholarship. You can you choose Jackson State or Alcorn. And the rest is history. The rest is history. So so there we go. So I I will tell you just to briefly my my journey is not much different. My family school is Alabama A&M, and I never even thought about when it was time for SAT applying or what have you. I I, I was always going to A&M. It was, wasn't even a question. I don't know how Jackson State got my test scores or what have you, but it was the offer of the scholarship that my folks like, you know, tradition is great, but free is so much better. So, so there we are. So, so yep. we have that in, in in common. Now, you choose to stay in Mississippi and start to build a career there. And then, were you in child advocacy there, family advocacy? Did you start there in the foundation world, or where was sort of your start from there? No. So the the start, I told you, I, I worked for internal. Was hired before I received my master's with Internal Revenue Service as a management analyst. And so that all circles back to the outstanding professors and directors and, you know, instructors at Jackson State. That is exactly how I landed that job through my mentor and then program director, Dr. Katrina Morland-Young. So, and I, I often tell people this, many of the professors that we had, many of the mentors that I've had who have worked with me and I'm sure this is you can this is probably true for you and many others our age and even younger. They saw in us something that we didn't see in ourselves. For sure. And so whether it was uh, Dr. Uh, Louisa Maria Alvarez Harvey, who recruited me to Jackson State by calling almost weekly 
I know. Saying you can't turn down this scholarship. I'm sure you got those calls. The late Dr. Mildred Allen, Dr. Jackie Franklin, all those folks played an integral part in making sure that we had the experiences and the exposure to get us to what our God-given talent was. And I don't even I don't even know another I don't know another way to explain that or say that. If you didn't know it or see it, like your parents, they saw it. They worked right. with us every day in class. They saw right. these opportunities. They would send you this way. So all that to say, she put me in a position to interview for that job, got it with hand, you know hands down, a major position with the federal government in Jackson, Mississippi, stayed there for five years. And then when they you know moved my position to Memphis, I had to sort of re- recheck, figure out, okay, do do we really want to do this or am I committed to staying in Mississippi to try to make a difference? And literally as a part of the uh, Mississippi Economic Council's Leadership Mississippi program, I was introduced to the nonprofit world focusing on education policy. And that was the turning point for me. I literally took a step back because to leave federal employment I was a GS-11. I took a major pay cut to make this shift. I just had my first child. So I was thinking about things, looking at life differently and wanted to really make a difference. And so that's when I started doing my work in early childhood education. And that was about the early 1990s. Okay. Okay. You work for the Children's Defense Fund too. Is that right? Yes, that's the next part of the story. So literally, while I was doing work in early childhood education at this nonprofit when I left Internal Revenue Service, fortunate for me, Children's Defense Fund had opened up shop, opened an office in Jackson, Mississippi, literally in a building across the street from the federal building where I had once worked. Once worked, And Olita Fitzgerald approached me about doing work in the, with the, child, the Children's Health Insurance Program as an administrator to help them implement or help the state implement the CHIP program in Mississippi and LUDCHIP in the state of Louisiana. And linking back to my community, little as it's known, Marion Wright Edelman was my aunt Winston Hudson's attorney in the fight for desegregation in Leake County in Mississippi. And she had spent time, I, I literally preparing for this conversation, pulled out a 1966, June 1966, Ebony Magazine. Wow. And there is Marion standing in my grandparents' store. Oh, wow. The store in my community where my grandparents owned and operated the store for years and years. She was there having a conversation with people in the local community trying to figure out the best route to take to integrate the school district. And so when I think about that, I was born a year later. And so I didn't even realize this until I had flown to Washington, D.C. to interview for this position with CDL. And we started talking about it. Oh, you you talked to her about it? Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. So, I mean, so that she is... Made um... ultimate full circle. Talk about full circle. I had no idea. You know what's so interesting about those two things is I, I think, one, when people will say, you know, things were a long time ago. No, they weren't that long ago. Anytime that you could, you know, point it to in our lifetime, that's not the, that's not a long time ago. And then the other thing is, is particularly when you see someone like Dr. Edelman, you you don't understand how much the, like like people aren't anointed as leaders. They put in that type of work ahead of time. Exactly. And, 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 exactly. and so that's 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 awesome. And and how long were you there at the uh, defense fund? Almost 15 years. OK, so I started out as the administrator of the Children's Health Insurance Program, did lots of work around child health. And then moved into a position where I led the supporting partnerships to assure ready kids program that put me squarely back into the early childhood education realm. And then on from there to become deputy director of the uh, Southern Regional Office. 
Got it. And then, and did you get to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation from there or was there a stop in between? So there was a stop in between. And so the, the other story, the other part of my story that links all this is I have been I, at that time. I was funded by W.K. Kellogg Foundation to do some of that work, to do some of that chip work, to do some of that the work around the early childhood education work in the state of Mississippi. And fast forward, when I left CDF, I worked for the Mississippi Center for Education Innovation as the executive director to do a, do more work on early childhood education, but education in general. And that effort was funded by, by the Kellogg Foundation. Stayed there for six years. And then after being there, applied and, and was hired as a director of programming for Mississippi and for New Orleans. That experience and the support that I received all the way through all those positions with the, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation really was the, it was the catalyst for why I'm doing what I'm doing now. If they had not provided that level of support, not only to me, but to other leaders in the state to do this type of work, I, I'm not sure where we would be. So the foundation has invested well over 60 plus years in the state of Mississippi or in the South in general. And the work has been focused on children, you know, making sure that children and their families are, uh, children are thriving, that families are working and that communities are equitable. Couple of questions here. So when say W.K. Kellogg Foundation What's the difference between other sort of Kellogg entities and the in the foundation where where you are where you're doing your work now? What's what's what is what's the mission of the WK Kellogg Foundation? So the the Kellogg Foundation is we receive our funding from the Kellogg Trust. The Kellogg Trust is funded by profits from the Kellogg Company. Got it. Okay. And so that's mm-hmm. the linkage or connection. People are usually confused by that. And that's why we try to make it a point to explain how that works. We are an independent private foundation founded in 1930 by breakfast cereal innovator and entrepreneur Will Keith Kellogg. And we're the largest philanthropic foundation in the U- U.S. And we're guided by the belief that all children should have an equal opportunity to thrive. And we work with communities across the country and internationally in some cases to make sure that we create the conditions so that children can realize their full potential in school, in life and in in work. And for the purposes of of your work, define what's children, what ages are we talking about? So all children, but when we we're specific in terms of our strategy and where we can make the most impact, we're focusing on children zero to eight. Zero to eight. Okay. Zero okay. to eight. That's the, that's the focus of, of of the children that we're working to serve. And you know, while we work in New Mexico, we work in Michigan, internationally, Mexico and Haiti, and in Mississippi, we're specifically working to support efforts in Sunflower County, the city of Jackson, and East Biloxi, Mississippi. Thank you for that. So so with that, what is sort of the, the state of children? I mean, now that we're 20 months into the pandemic, where are things? Well, you know, Mark, the, the state of children, we've been in a quandary for a while, particularly poor and vulnerable children. The fact that we had Millions of children living in poverty prior to the pandemic was problematic. But when you take a look at us being forced to to respond and have this health pandemic that has taken more than 500,000 lives, it's created economic crisis and restructuring all the different mandates. All of this has taken a toll on our nation's children and young people and children are not immune from this. When you look at the loss of family income, which includes food insecurity, when you look at the number of children of color who disproportionately have experienced learning loss during the pandemic, 
and you look at housing insecurity that we know leads to even more, you know, negative long-term uh, effects, we have a lot of work to do. Children are being impacted at every level. And I think you mentioned this earlier when, you know, when we were having conversations back and forth, physically, economically, academically, socially, psychologically. And when we look at child well-being, the reports that have been put out, the data that has been the data that has been shared, report special attention to the, you know, impacts of the of the pandemic. As of February of 2021, we know that there are almost four million children with cases that have been reported. And then you also have to look at the number of adults who have been impacted who have children. So 2.5 million children have fallen into poverty because of the pandemic, the impact on their caregiver, you know, their parents. It's just almost overwhelming in terms of the negative impacts on children. Yeah, you know, and this is for another show or what have you, but I will tell you that um, one of the things that I think people don't understand about whether it's masking, whether it's vaccinating, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, is is that the impact is not on you. It's, it, the impact is on someone else. And so when I hear those kinds of numbers, and when I think of the deaths in particular, it's also a lot of grief with oh, that. Yeah. And, when you, and, and when you talk about a person being lost, and especially in multi-generational households, which a lot of brown, black and brown people have, right? You're talking about not just a grandmother or a abuela who, who's, you know, in some distant thing. You're talking about somebody who's there involved in the development. So, you know. An auntie, no an uncle. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you, all those things. And, and you know, it, it impacts our community even more because you have more situations that have, you know, uh, multiple generations living in a, in a household and parents relying on support and assistance from the other folks who are in their family. So it's, it's, it's devastating. It's been devastating for all children, but particularly children who are, who are vulnerable. Yeah. And what are some things that should be being done right now? I mean, that's a, there's a lot of, that's a lot of ground loss, right? And that's, that's where we are. What should be happening now or what, you know, what, what are you guys advocating for? One of the things we did, and I'll have to speak for our foundation and for the world of philanthropy, we basically provide support and cut the checks. We don't do the actual on the ground work. We support community organizations and entities who meet the criteria and support them in the work they do. Community organizations on the ground have been a saving grace because they're the ones who see and know the immediate needs. It, it may take city, state, or the federal government some time before anything can be enacted. You know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the different acts and laws that are in place and what's coming on the horizon. But the people that are standing in the gap, as soon as COVID hit, whether it was in New Orleans or the city of Jackson, were those community organizations that were there if they needed school districts shut down. You had children at home whose parents were at work and they didn't have access to warm nutrition, nutritional meals. So that yeah. gap had to be filled. So many of our grantees stepped up, even if, if something like that may not have been a part of their programming, they shifted to meet the needs of the community. And I think that was critical. They did a wonderful job. We in turn made some changes in some of our policies so that it would be easier to get dollars and funding out to them to do this type of work. So now we're, you know, we're looking toward what's going to come from the government. So we know we've got the infrastructure bill that has passed. You've got the CARES Act that, you know, some communities and organizations are still reaping the benefits from that. You've got the ARPA funding. Now we're looking toward Build Back Better to really come in 
and and take care of a lot of these pieces, missing pieces that have to be developed and supported in order for our children to be able to thrive. And so what are some of those pieces? And I don't need the whole, but just, just, and, and the reason I ask is, is that my reading of, of history and what I know is that, you know, there can be a bill or a law that's passed, but that's just where the work is beginning, right? So whether it's voting rights or whether it's um, whatever it may be, it's that's just the beginning of it. So what are some of those things that, that people should be keeping an eye out for to say, you know, here's some policies that we should or, or groups that we should be supporting or that are doing those kinds of things. You make a great point, Mark, in saying, you know, policies can be in- enacted and passed all day long. That's really the easy part. Yeah. The complicated part and the part where oftentimes we don't, we aren't able to do what we need to do is in the implementation. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're looking at and what can come out of the Build Back Better plan at this point is universal preschool for three and four year olds, potentially six six years or so of funding there, limiting childcare costs for families to not more than seven percent of their income is critical for families that are earning up to two hundred and fifty percent of the state median income, and then you know strengthening Medicaid and extending the child tax credit for a year. When things like this are done it removes families and children from the grips of poverty. And those are massive pieces. And we can do all that we can on the ground. But until programs like this are implemented effectively and we make sure that communities and organizations know how to take advantage of these types of policy changes, our money is just a drop in the bucket. And and I'm not diminishing what it is we can do. But it's like the icing on the cake. I give people this example all the time in investing resources. We could have a million dollars, run a summer program for 100 children and do a bang up job at doing that. But at the end of that summer, you've served 100 students with that million and it's, it's basically gone. If you invest a million dollars into some major effort, that will be a systems change, then you could impact 100,000 children over the course of many, many, many years. So I always use that example just to give people, you know, direct service versus a major systems or policy shift that that can do wonders. And, And our hope is that children will reap the benefits from these federal and state dollars. Yeah. So I am, uh, board member of the Urban League here in Atlanta and awesome. um, and on different um, various calls have heard people talking and, and those tax credits in particular for children have a tremendous impact on lifting families and particularly children out of poverty. And so I'm glad you said that and brought that out because I, while I don't want it this to be a, a wonky bill on terms of policy, but I do think it's important that people understand that what may sound very technical or what have you can have some really important impacts. One of the things you, you mentioned was universal preschool, and I want to link this to, or if there's a linkage or what have you, with Head Start, and particularly in this conversation, because Dr. Edelman, one of the things she did is is expanded Head Start, uh, particularly there in Mississippi. But and and I and I think a lot of people don't know or are unaware that the Head Start program really came out of the Mississippi Freedom School, Schools in the um, what we now know as uh, Mississippi Freedom Summer of '64. Where's Head Start right now in terms of its health? And then where it's working well or where it's where it's not. So, Mark, I, I'm glad you made that connection because Head Start is one of the closest things that we have to universal uh, universal pre-K backing up to children being in that age range, three and four year olds. Head Start, and, and just so the audience, just to give them a little background, is the federally funded early childhood education program 
And its major focus was on eligible students and low-income families. It was established in 1965 as a part of, of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And the goal was really to promote school readiness through the provision of health, education, nutrition, and social services. So it was a holistic approach. And ultimately, that is the type of programming that you have to have for young children because you can't, children don't come in pieces. So their services should not come in pieces. And this has been the approach that Dr. Edelman and the Children's Defense Fund have taken from, you know, initializing or helping to initialize uh, Head Start in its early beginnings to make sure that it was community driven and it was a holistic approach to early childhood education. So now, I guess most recently, the numbers I looked at, Congress has authorized more than 10 billion on Head Start based on recent information. It enrolls almost a million children annually. And this investment is much needed. Now, you, now you ask the question, where has it been done well? Where has it been done not so well? Yeah. It depends on who you ask. It okay. depends on who you ask. <laughs> right. Studies have been done. The Brookings Institute has done a study. Um, and they they all talk about, you know, the success and the efficacy of Head Start and getting children from where they meet them to say the beginning of first grade, but by third grade, some of the effectiveness wanes. That's that's questionable. And that, like I said, depends on who you ask. Is it is it the is it Head Start or is it the school system itself in terms of the way it's uh, set up? So many school districts are have uh, not been providing, we're not providing developmentally appropriate practices. And so that therein lies some of the, the disconnect. But overall, if you take a look at Head Start, where it meets children and where it brings them to, you have to agree that it is successful. Prominent early childhood advocate, Dr. Joan Lombardi, talks about Head Start and how successful and how significant it is, particularly to children who are come from vulnerable environments. If you look at, there's a list of like famous Head Start alums, and I love to look at the list. Darren Walker, who heads the Ford Foundation, Chris Rock, yep. Shaquille O'Neal, Monty yeah. St. John, you, mayors, representatives. There's a laundry list that talks about how successful they become. And in the state of Mississippi, I, I can name people that I know who are very successful and they are all Head Start alums. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about a book that I read that, in my opinion, makes the connection between Freedom Summer and Freedom Schools in Mississippi and how critical Head Start was in terms of carrying on the legacy of the civil rights movement. And Dr. Crystal Sanders, I, I can't remember who told me about this book, but when I read it and I wanted it to become required reading for, for my team members because it was an excellent history lesson to give you an idea of the connection between a jobs, how important a jobs program and an early childhood education program intertwined was to the state of Mississippi. The book title is A Chance for Change, Head Start and Mississippi's Black Freedom Struggle. It came out in 2016. And the author, she actually stumbled upon a speech, a 1966 speech given by then U.S. Senator, the late John C. Stennis of Mississippi, where he took to the floor and he opposed the Child Development Group of Mississippi and the statewide Head Start program, because he maintained it was a front for communism and black militancy. Can you be, can you believe I, this? I, I can, but it's just it's, it's it's painful every time I hear it. But go ahead, I can. So, so, she, so she she asked the question, and I asked the question: What in the world could be so radical and so subversive about a program for preschoolers? Yeah, you know how it just it just boggles the mind. But because 
during the time of, so Dr. Edelman was in Mississippi, the first black woman acknowledged by the bar in Mississippi, working to desegregate the schools. All of the folk who she worked with were employed by Head Start. Okay. So not only were they training children, many of the people, my aunt, my aunt, one son, many people in my community were a part of Head Start. And so they were educated and uh, understood the community needs, understood the needs of the children. And all this parlayed right into the fight for desegregation. There's there's a couple of things in there that 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 are sticking for me is is that and I didn't know I didn't make the link until you just said it in terms of Head Start and and health and there was a school district someplace in Wisconsin and somehow they they got it right where they were going to re- reject free lunch and they free lunch they mm. said that that was a that was teaching the kids to handouts were there and not all of this bootstrap or what have you. And listen, I know what it's like for me during the work day and I haven't eaten and I can't think or what have you. How do you expect children to, to learn that's if, if they're hungry? I mean, that's such a, a basic thing and, and basic human need. Yeah, and it's and, and I don't know why we continue to have these same conversations, and especially when it's it, that's an obvious one. The other thing is with Head Start and in, in our conversation. Off mic, you mentioned this about the jobs. I think it's so important that the dignity of work yeah. and how that helps communities is is so important. I mean, certainly there's income and all of those things with it, but just the idea of work in in terms of when a child is around healthy and thriving adults, parents, and whatever you know the family structure is, they're going to do better too. I don't I don't know why we don't make these these linkages because they're obvious. Or at least it should be. There are very obvious linkages, but think about that during that time. If you were involved and engaged in any of the voting rights uh, work with Fannie Lou Hamer and any of the other folks across the state, you were blackballed. I mean, they called loans uh, on your home and foreclosed on your land and property. And so many of those pioneers in the civil rights movement the only way they could make a living to t- help take care of their families was to become a part of the Head Start program. Some were directors, some were cooks, some you know drove the buses. They did whatever they could, and at the same time provided support to young children. So there's I can't think of any better program that merges all of those things and approaches it from a holistic perspective to not only uplift children, but to uplift the community that had been so downtrodden just for fighting for the right to vote. A side note, we just lost one of the largest icons, um, Dr. Marvin Hogan, a couple of weeks ago, director Friends of Children of Mississippi for 50 plus years. And my hat, you know, goes out to he and to his, his family and all the things that he did Friends of Children was the operator of the Lee County Head Start program. The center in Carthage is now named for my aunt, late Winston Hudson. And uh, my sister and I, because our parents, you could either teach or preach. Right. <laughs> when, my, when our parents came out, if you stayed in Mississippi, you could teach or preach. So, of course, they taught. They made too much money for us to attend Head Start. At that time in the 60s and 70s, there was no early childhood, very little early childhood programming. The mothers of the church kept the children. And so when you got too old to do that, parents had to just find, you know, the equivalent of babysitters. And so we stayed in my grandparents' store and literally when the the Head Start Center was right next door to my grandparents' store, they would come out and play during their break or recess. We would play with them and never could understand why we couldn't go to, we called it little school. Yep. Because we couldn't, we were, we were the earliest, I guess the youngest Head Start volunteers. So the (laughs) teachers would say that we could volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. And so we got a chance to come in and and do some of the things that, that they did. But I, I say all that to say how much of a part 
of community a head start was particularly to black communities throughout the South, particularly in Mississippi. And hats off to those pioneers like the late Marvin Hogan, the late Billy Joe McCain up in Bolivar County. And I had the privilege of working with these gentlemen in the program, knowing the history that I know in the position that I'm in. And it just, I would get chills whenever I was in a room with these folks. Dr. Aaron Shirley played a major role in, uh, of course, health care, but in, in early childhood education and, and how critical health was. Yes. And he worked with all these folk work together. And I think yes. that's the other piece that ties into your leadership matters. Yes. When you had these matter. kind of leaders building bridges and tra- I was so flattered that I was able to work with Dr. Shirley on a Robert Wood Johnson grant to do some of the community health house work that he, the health houses work that he did. And I just can't, you can't pay for that kind of experience and knowledge sharing. Yeah, no, you can't pay for that. And you know, what you're, what you're really highlighting, even with what Senator Stennis and we're, we're actually going to have some folks on talking about just education and history and all of those things. It's very important that we tell these stories and it's not to make anybody feel bad or worse or anything, but people have to understand a couple of things. What people have done, people will do because Mm -hmm. if, if you understand that there were, that there was that, that all of our advances were done by people actually just saying, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to this and doing using my talent and expertise in this area. And so that I'm glad you you shared that. I will say, you said it was Senator Stennis in Mississippi who was against, was it Stennis? It was Stennis. Okay. So I'm here in Georgia now, but Senator Richard B. Russell, who the the federal building is named after and the Senate building where they stormed the Capitol is named named after as well. There were a lot of people who at the time of Brown versus Board were against school integration. And I will tell you one of the things that while we have desegregated by law, actual school integration, and this affects clearly children and families, seems to be intractable. Now, the the numbers that I have is that there's a, a fifth of public schools that have no children of color. About 75% of Black children still attend highly segregated, highly impoverished, high concentration of poverty, high schools that are both highly segregated and with high concentrations of poverty. And this isn't a a South issue. I mean, the the heaviest segregation is in New York City and in Chicago and Boston. Not necessarily as your role as a parent or as a child uh, and family advocate. What are we missing there with uh, why are we still having this? It's not even a fight. It's almost like we've become numb to the effects of segregation or the benefits of having desegregated schools? Mark, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, it has been, we've tried, you know, at one time busing was the answer and we know that that really wasn't the answer. We had a time where specifically in Mississippi, we had, you know, Rosenwald schools. Let's go back a little bit before desegregation, before desegregation, when things were segregated you know, it was illegal for black folk to even know how to read and write. Yep. You move forward, then you, because they're working the fields, they might make it to the sixth grade. Yep. Then you move, move beyond that. Then you have the Rosenwald schools established across the Southeast. And I know I tell everybody, if you, if you're a college graduate or whatever, look, check the history. And I'm sure if your parents were college graduates, they most more than likely came out of a Rosenwald school. So we had this progression around education for people of color. And all of a sudden, we wanted, we're pushing for desegregation. We're pushing for integration. And what happens in a place like Mississippi is all your Black leadership is demoted. So if you were a principal 
at the Rosenwald School or the school that was traditionally a black school, you were the assistant, if assistant principal, if you were the coach, you were the assistant. So that completely demolished, you know, what as a people we had built up and you basically had no control over your, the way the school districts were operated and run. So that when you look at that history, it's no surprise. And we've not done anything outside of busing that I'm aware of to make that, to actually make it work for all children, for, for everyone that's involved. What you've seen happen recently is dollars for public schools is tied to your uh, local millage rate or tax rate. And when you look at that, where are the dollars going to come from in, say, a Drew, Mississippi? Yep. Or a Mount Bayou, Mississippi? If you look at other parts of the state who have the wherewithal, who have the tax base, the county where I'm sitting in, we have the tax base. We can build new schools, new buildings. We can do turf fields and we can do all these things. Yep. And the st- we really have not looked across the spectrum of the needs of the school districts and, and funded accordingly. Yeah. You know, just in the state of Mississippi, we talk about the, we've talked about the funding formula for years and years and years, and we've changed it. We've tweaked it, but every time we've never fully funded education to right that wrong, to bring these struggling districts up to par with some of the other districts that are better funded and performing at a higher level. And then we act surprised. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 and that surprise is so disingenuous. I mean, with the, the way funding's tied to property taxes and, and there's a whole nother thing that we could go into about people being left out of the, the GI bill and, and, and housing loans or what have you. And so as long as we're, we're tying our future to current property taxes, we're going to have those persistent problems. I'll tell you something else you you mentioned with that that was probably a miss. And I and I don't mean this as 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 uh from as Solomon, right? I mean this is hindsight. But Malcolm Gladwell has either I think it's a podcast where he talked about during desegregation, everything was focused on the children but the black teachers and administrators were left out of the formula and how that there were many highly segregated schools with excellent black administrators and teachers who should have been a part of that, that everybody would have benefited from. I heard Spike Lee in an interview talk about his, um, I think his grandmother was an art teacher and said she was an excellent art teacher. Yeah, she said the unfor- he he says the unfortunate thing is that there's generations of white children that did not experience her having her as as a teacher, and so that idea of segregation it ends up hurting hurting everybody. I, I hope that well. I don't hope that, but we we've got to we've got to do some work around that because that's that's a problem that's that's still persisting. I do want to advance. Go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna make this quick point. The reverse of that is if you take a Jackson State, yep, any other HBCU in the state, and you may not, you may or may not know this. Most of your listening audience probably does not know this. When you got your bachelor's degree at an HBCU in the state. The state of Mississippi would not allow you to attend one of the, the historically white schools to get your oh, uh, yeah. next level degree, your master's or your Ph.D. So guess what? You people went to Iowa, Oregon and the state of Mississippi paid for them to get that degree. And they came back and taught at HBCUs. And then we ended up we're the beneficiaries of that. That's right. That's right. So no, that's the flip side of segregation. Yeah. So we ended up having professors who had been exposed to all sorts of, you know, wonderful uh, other institutions that, that ca- they came back and they were able to share that knowledge and that expertise with us. So, yeah, no, I have an aunt. So my my ancestral home is is Alabama, as I like to say, is uh, and my aunt got her master's in Michigan for the same 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 reason. And I, and I think people don't understand is how 
Thurgood Marshall ends up at, at Howard because Maryland's like, rather than let a black person in, we'll pay you to go someplace else. It's, 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 it's right. madness. If you look at the history, it's really madness. One of the things that, that I didn't, I wasn't aware of before we were talking about this, this interview is that your work in, in the foundation's work with the Mississippi State flag and its change. I was completely unaware of that. Can you give a little bit about that? Sure, sure, Mark. So, like I said earlier, we don't have any direct stake in any action like that that's taken. Our grantees, we're fortunate enough that we had grantees committed to this work. They stuck to it. They worked with worked across aisles to make this happen. For years and years, the Black leadership in the state, I think every session that I can remember attending a session, there was a bill introduced to remove the, the previous state flag. It didn't go anywhere until folks on the ground were able to come together across racial lines, across party lines to make this happen. I don't think it would have happened. All, it's a story of all the stars aligning. Yep. So you have the dynamic student at one of the uh, historical white institutions standing up and saying, I'm not playing I'm not playing ball if we don't yeah. get this flag ball down. player from Ole Miss. You I can't think his name right now, but yes, yeah, he was super yeah. So that student, you have coaches, you have the Mississippi Economic Council, the business leaders take out a full page ad in the paper saying that they're going to stand, you know, they're not going to stand for this because it's hurting the state economically. We had uh, a grantee pull together a group of, of clergymen across the state, full page uh, coverage in the Clarion Ledger. We had national coverage in terms of what was going on and why, why this flag needs to be removed. Symbols matter. Yes. And I tell people this was, a, I think, the first step in a movement toward a more progressive Mississippi a Mississippi that respects the human dignity of everyone and even the design of the new flag. The fact that we had the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians represented. We had everybody was had a had a role to play or uh, some input in the design of the new flag. And I think that was that's one step toward healing. Yes. Because we until we get this right. I, James Baldwin said it best. Uh, the, the the quote that where he talks about nothing can be fixed until it's faced. Yes. So you can't fix anything until you face it, and then when you face it, there has to be some healing and transformation that takes place to get you to the other side. And that's not that's both that's both races. That's everyone. That's right. That's and so right. we have through our racial equity and racial healing efforts. We have constantly exposed our grantees to this, this thought process and this mindset. We provided training to leaders. And so I think all of these set in motion the eventual removal of the, the previous state flag and the adoption of the new state flag, that, who is really representative of all Mississippians. Well, I, I certainly think you and many of our classmates and people that I know have had families who've been families, church members, neighbors who've been involved in that for, for years. So, you know, kudos to everyone for that work. As we sort of come to a close, I do want to, to switch gears a little bit. And we reserve this, this question for, for three groups of people. If you are from Chicago, from Alabama or Mississippi, right here at the Parlay in All Blue, because it's important. Because each of those three places, that that's my foundation. That the combination of, of those three places, and I, and clearly, each of them has their their time in the sun on a daily basis about something that is going wrong, right? But if you've been there and know people from there, there's a different experience, right? So. From your perspective, what is beautiful about Mississippi? What do outsiders not get? Oh, I think it's it's mainly the people. I, I have to say it's the people. I think it's it's family or the familial ties. We often joke, Mark, and I'm sure you've heard this. 
We call Chicago North Mississippi. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. So that's yeah. you know that's home for so many people across this. The South is home. Mississippi is home for so many people across the the nation. The fellowship. In the, the words of a colleague, a white colleague of mine, he said it this way, and I it just really rang a bell and resonated with me. He said, a place like Mississippi is, if you've got the means and access, it's the best place to be to rear a family. But if you don't, God help you. Yeah. Those were his words, not mine, but it just, it just told the story. And so you can't beat our food. Yeah. It, most anything good comes out of Mississippi. Look at food. Look at look at any look at the NBA, the NFL. Look at entertainment. You name it, it comes from Mississippi. Well, yes, and and the the title of the show, the parlay in all blue, because the all blue is a nod to all of the blues derived music, right? right? Whether it's rock and roll, rap, R and B, jazz, all of that. So so. You don't have to convince me. I just want them to know. I, I just want them to know. I just yeah. want them to know. So what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live well? And then I, I my caveat to that is to live well in, in Mississippi, anywhere but in Mississippi, is to have human dignity, to not just be making it for today, being able to not just say you're living, but that you're thriving. And it goes back to our, what we say about what we want for children. We want children to thrive yep. all across the world. We want children to thrive in Mississippi. And that, that takes a mindset of you can't just think about what's best for you and your children. Yeah, You have to think about what's best for your children and all children. And my mantra mantra is that what I what I want for my children is the same exact thing that I want for all children. Amen. Living to that. in the state of Mississippi. Living in, in the United States of America, living in the world. So when we when we figure out a way to equalize that, I think we'll get there. I also think that human development is the most important thing we can invest in. If we don't invest in education and developing human beings to continue and carry on, then what are we doing? I couldn't agree more. I can't think of it. What what are we doing if we're not investing our time, treasure, efforts, talent into developing and molding small mind? Then what are we doing? Yep. No, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, and, and that's powerful. What what I want for my kids, I want for your kids. That that's 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 awesome. And human development. There was so much there. So so thank you for that. So now we're gonna lighten it up just a little bit as we close out. Hey, listen right now and shout out Coach Prime. I saw him on social media today that he's getting healthier and, and all of those things. And so, you know, thank God. And you and I know, listen, as far as I, I'm, I'm, I'm sporting mine every day, but I've been sporting. I see you. You know, it, it, but, but you like me, we, we true blue all the time. So this is just, this is just another day in the sun of many days in the mm-hmm. sun. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we've had some not go, not so good days. All right. And it's a good, great day to be a tiger, but give me one day of being a tiger that was not so great. Mark, I can't really think of. Uh, I can I can't think of one day that it's not. It's good to be a tiger every day. We've had some ups and downs, and even when our team was losing. So my family history is that my husband played football for Jackson State. That's right. His dad. His dad's brothers, they coached, one brother coached. My dad played basketball at Jackson State. I didn't know that. Okay. You could just go on and on and on. Right. So there's not a bad day ever to be a Tiger. And when we were down and out, my sister and I, when our sons played for Jackson State, we would drive or ride the bus to those games. And I don't care if we got beat into the ground. Yep. We were going to be standing there at the end of the game with our pom-pom hell high singing Jackson Fair. The I love. The I love. Right. 
the I love. All right, so you know what we will, we will just let it go with that. You know what the I love, and, and y'all heard it. So for anybody on all of the various message boards and what have you, it's the I love all the time, and there's never a bad time to be a tiger. And we do the same thing, no matter what the end of, no matter what's on the scoreboard, we still the I love. Exactly. Exactly. So, Doctor. Rhea Williams Bishop, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And I am going to ask everyone else to stay tuned and listen to some messages at the end of the episode. We appreciate you all sticking with us. And um, thanks. And thank you again, Rhea, this time. Thank you so much. Take care. All All right. Take care. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.